If you suffer from urinary incontinence, it can upend your whole way of life, but it is treatable. Here to discuss that issue with us is Dr. Andrew Augusta. He is a urogynecologist with McLaren Health System. This is McLaren's In Good Health, the podcast from McLaren. I'm Caitlin White. So, Doctor, what causes urinary incontinence in women? Okay, well, there's a lot of different causes. So there's some simple things which are reversible, like infection. You know, a urinary tract infection can cause leakage. Pharmaceuticals, different medications that patients can take can affect the bladder. And so, for instance, if a patient is on Lasix, which is a water pill, that's going to stress out the bladder by, you know, making more urine production. And if they're treating that your high blood pressure for that or with that, you know, there are other things that can be done. So we may send you back to the primary doc and and uh, have them just adjust that. And that may be all you need. There are conditions where you produce more urine than normal, such as diabetes. And a lot of people are walking the streets with diabetes without knowing that diagnosis. Restricted mobility. These are things that can be reversed. And then there are other causes. So if we talk about the other causes, one of the big ones is decreased urethra support. So, Caitlin, the urethra is situated, first of all, the tube that urine that you urinate through. And that's situated uh, on, on top of the upper vaginal wall. And that is supported by that upper vaginal wall. So if you cough or sneeze, that pressure gets transmitted to the bladder and to the urethra. And the urethra gets pressed against the upper wall, so there's a compression of the urethra and urine doesn't leak out. If the support weakens, then the urethra is just kind of falls away from its normal anatomical location uh, with activity and there's no compression, so urine is able to leak out. And so that's common things that can happen. And then a second thing is actual weakened sphincter of the urethra itself. The urethra has, it has to have certain function where it, it closes off tightly, and we call it coaptation, and it makes a watertight seal. So if a patient stands up, the urine just doesn't fall out. And so there are uh, some patients that lose the function of that urethra. And so the, the urethra becomes very loose and the seal is broken. And so very simple little things allow urine just to slip right through. And then a third thing is bladder overactivity. So when we're children, you know, our neurologic system is not mature. And so when you when the bladder fills up, the natural thing for the bladder to do is to contract and squeeze the urine out. And so it's not until three years old or whenever we get potty trained that the nervous system is intact and, and mature enough that you can inhibit the uh, contraction of the bladder may get urgency and you say, I've got to go. You can say, don't go. I'm not in, uh, you know, the socially acceptable spot right now. And, and you wait until you're in the restroom and you say, okay, now let's go ahead and squeeze that urine out. There are patients that lose the ability to inhibit the bladder. So oftentimes it's a neurologic thing. It can be nervous system disorders like stroke, Parkinson's, MS, you know, lumbar disc disease, uh, these can affect it. And for the most part, uh, a lot of times we can't put our finger on the exact cause, but there could be injury during childbirth uh, on the nerves going to the bladder. And, and through the years, it may worsen and worse and worse and where then all of a sudden it can, becomes like that lamp that you have with a, a crack in the cord that sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm. <laughs> and they can, 
you know, then so they get this urge and they cannot control the urge. And there's mixtures of these things. You know, you can have the, you know, the overactive type of bladder with the loss of support or the overactive type bladder with uh, the poor urethra function. That kind of leads me into my next question. Are there different types of urinary incontinence? What we do is now we put a name to, to those causes. And so that would be considered our diagnosis. So stress urinary incontinence is one of the most common types of uh, urinary problems uh, causing incontinence. And that really is the loss of the urethra support. And then there's a condition which we call intrinsic sphincteric deficiency, or we abbreviate that to ISD mostly. And that is uh, the poorly functioning urethra. The overactivity of the bladder and the inability to inhibit those contractions, uh, we typically label as overactive bladder. And then if there's combinations of them, we will call that mixed urinary incontinence. And then there are less common types um, of urinary incontinence as well that we have to rule out, but we don't see them nearly as, as often. And those may include urinary fistulas. So you can have what's called a vesicovaginal or urethrovaginal fistula. And what a fistula is, is a connection. And so it's a connection from the bladder to the vagina or the urethra to the vagina. And so urine is just allowed to slip right through and go in. You're losing urine through the vagina. Now, these sort of things are, are mostly complications of hysterectomy here in this country. But there are outpouchings of urethra as a, another type uh, called the urethra diverticulum, where that outpouching gets filled with urine and then can leak out. There can be congenital things where embryologically, you know, the things didn't happen correctly. And instead of the ureter, which is the tube from the kidney that drains urine from the kidney going into the bladder, Instead of it implanting in the bladder, it could be implanted into the urethra and it leaks right through and overflow incontinence would be the last thing. And what that is, it's a, a different form of neurologic problem to the bladder in which you, you lose sensation to the bladder. And so you, you don't feel full and your bladder becomes a very large capacity bladder. And you also lose your motor capability to squeeze and so you can't empty well. And so what happens is the bladder just fills and fills and fills. And uh, eventually it's like pouring a cup of coffee and you just never stop. It just will overflow and the continence mechanisms. And, and that's another cause. Now, what are some symptoms that we should look out for before we get a diagnosis? If we <clears throat> talk about stress, urinary incontinence, the, the main symptom is leaking with stress. Uh, and when we say stress, we, we're really talking about activity. So I leak when I cough, sneeze, lift, that sort of thing. If <clears throat> we're talking about overactive bladder, it's usually urgency to urinate, frequency, and <clears throat> you know, getting up at night a lot and uh, leaking with urge. So I gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, and you know, you run to the bathroom, but you're leaking on the way there. And so the problem is that the bladder doesn't make a, a, a really good witness. So what it does is, you know, you can get an idea by history of which way you're leaning, but a lot of these symptoms go along with all the diagnoses. And so we have to then rule things out. We have to do a good history, a good examination. We'll check to see how well they've emptied their bladder and check the urine for infection. 
have someone cough and bear down in an upright position to see if there's any direct leakage. And oftentimes we can come up with a diagnosis just with simple things like that. There are certain cases that are more complicated, however, and we're really not sure of the diagnosis. With those cases, we do some bladder testing, which are called urodynamic tests. And these are done in the office. Uh, they're not a big deal. It's about a half hour. We fill the bladder with some water and we evaluate pressures in the urethra and the bladder and try to figure out what's working properly and what's not. But with those things, we can come up with a diagnosis and treat you. And going into that, you know, what are some treatments that we can do? Okay, for, for stress incontinence, the mainstay of treatment used to be what's called a birch urethropexy, and that's a surgery. It required an abdominal incision. You would dissect down to the urethra, and we would put sutures on the sides of the urethra, grabbing the, that upper vaginal wall and pulling it up to, to reestablish the support. We held it up like suspension bridge. And it worked great. I mean, they had very good uh, cure rating to 90%, and it was a good procedure. But nowadays, we have we very rarely do the birch because we have uh, synthetic medurethra slings. And these are little procedures where we come underneath the urethra and support the urethra like a hammock. And we use a, a piece of uh, material that is about the width of a piece of scotch tape. And so the differences between birch and the mid slings is, well, the mid sling, instead of an hour and a half uh, surgery, now is about a 10-minute surgery. Instead of inpatient, it's outpatient. You go home right directly from the recovery room. Instead of incision, they're just little pokes. And because of that, there's negligible amount of discomfort. Nobody takes any pain pills. And the, it has the exact same cure rate, 80 to 90%. And so it's a very, very simple thing for the patient to undergo, and it's a life changer in, in a lot of cases. Now, if we talk about ISD, which is the poorly functioning urethra, we can still use a mid-urethra sling, except we narrow that sling down. So instead of it just stopping the urethra from falling and supporting the bottom of the urethra, it kind of hugs the side walls as well. So it's a little more aggressive, and it will help coaptate or close that urethra down. Um, if you have poorly functioning urethra or ISD that is very severe, then that mid-urethra sling may not be enough to hold back uh, that urine. And so in those cases, we do what's called a pubal vaginal sling. And that's just a much wider sling. It's like two and a half to three times wider than the mid-urethra slings. It goes from mid-urethra all the way to the opening of the bladder. And that just forms a, a bigger backboard. So when pressure pushes down in that urethra, it hits a much bigger backboard and allows that, to, that urethra to close more effectively. There also are office procedures that can be done as simple things, such as urethra bulking. What we do is we inject material around the urethra in the office, and it just closes that urethra down so it helps coaptate that urethra and increase resistance. And so it's a very simple thing. We use some local anesthetic, you know, numbing medicine, and uh, it's tolerated very, very well. It only takes a few minutes, and uh, it, it helps a lot of patients as well. For overactive bladder, which are the, you know, inability to inhibit the spasms and, you know, overactivity or spastic bladder, we usually will start with medication. 
And there's a number of medicines on the market. They work pretty well. They do have some side effects, mainly with dryness in your mouth. But most patients can tolerate them fine. So that is always our, our first line uh, beyond, you know, more simpler conservative things. But they oftentimes will help the majority of patients. If they don't help enough, or if you're sensitive to them and you really can't tolerate them, then we have to get more aggressive. And there's two things that we can do. Number one is called neuromodulation. And what that is, is electrical stimulation to the nerves going to the bladder. So we stimulate the nerves going to the bladder. It helps relax the bladder. Uh, there is an office test that we do beforehand to see if you're a good candidate. If, you, if it, it helps with a little temporary stimulation, then we will go ahead and, and insert the, the real thing. With neuromodulation, there's a small battery that is implanted underneath the skin in the buttocks area. And it's very small, about the size of a flash drive. And those batteries now can last up to about 15 years. And so that's one effective method. The second thing that can be done is Botox injections. And this is an office procedure when we simply inject Botox into the muscle of the bladder in different areas, and that relaxes the bladder, and it's quite effective. And usually we'll have to repeat it about every six months, but it keeps their their bladder spasms in check. Now, before we reach a surgery, are there any over-the-counter treatments? So one over-the-counter method is a device called Impressa. It's a vaginal insert. And you buy the Impressa. It comes in three different sizes. You find out which size is the best appropriate fit and, and works the best for you. And then what you do is you insert the Impressa when you need it. So patients use it intermittently. For instance, they may put uh, an Impressa in before they're going to the gym. But when we talk about conservative things, for urinary leakage, um, there's a number of things that, that we do recommend. And number one, lifestyle intervention. So weight reduction is something that can help patients with their urinary leakage. And it's been found that as little as 8% body loss of weight from your baseline is, is enough to reduce your urinary leakage uh, significantly. And so that's not that much. If you're a 150-pound woman, it's a 12-pound weight loss. And so it's certainly doable. Dietary restriction, you, we tell people to don't overdo it with possible irritants to the bladder, such as caffeine, you know, alcohol, that sort of thing. Fluid modification, you know, we're all taught that drinking water is healthy and drinking eight to 10 glasses is healthy. A lot of women overdo it. You know, they, they may start it out with, for dietary purposes by increasing their fluids, but then they get so accustomed to it that instead of the 8 to 10, now they're drinking 15 and 20 and 25. And they get so used to it that they don't even realize that they're drinking that much. But I've seen patients putting out five or six liters of urine a day. And if you're doing that, you're keeping your bladder full all the time. And so if you have issues with involuntary loss of urine, that's just going to make your symptoms worse. And so we want to restrict that to back down to a normal consumption of eight to 10 or two liters a day. For patients that are getting up three, four, five times a night, we will restrict fluids after supper to see if that will help. Second thing that we can do is Kegel exercises or pelvic floor muscle exercises. That is something that we can help teach during examination so we can make sure that the woman is squeezing appropriately the right muscle. 
There also is anti-incontinence pessaries, and those are rubber or silicone devices that are inserted intravaginally. And what they do is put a low pressure against the urethra, similar to that Impressa over-the-counter device, but that's something that can be done. There's also some biofeedback things that you can do at home with your smartphone. So biological feedback is uh, something that gives you some feedback of what you're doing by sight, sound, that sort of thing. So what you do is there's a vaginal device that you insert that, and then if you squeeze to do a Kegel exercise on your smartphone, you can see how well you're doing. So they'll put it into a graphic form, and it will go up and then go down as you loosen up. Then what happens is the software runs you through workouts. So to say, climb this hill, and you have to climb it. Now loosen it up and go down the hill, go back up another one. And so they'll do different things to allow you to gain more and more control of those muscles. So wrapping up here, are there any health consequences if urinary incontinence is left untreated? Well, there are. First of all, it's not heart disease, so it's not going to kill you. On the other hand, there certainly is a negative impact on your social and personal activities. So it more involves quality of life. And so it certainly can affect your quality of life significantly. It causes anxiety. Patients are, you know, afraid to to go to church because, you know, they may have an accident and they're going to embarrass themselves or the person next to them may smell urine on them. And so, you know, it, it stops them from doing those things. And it can lead to depression and isolation. And, you know, isolation, uh, you know, we, we all know what that's all about now with COVID. You know, we're social animals and we need to be around people and interact with people. And if you're stuck at home because you're afraid to go out of the house, that, that is not healthy for you. So, you know, what it does is it takes a person's you know, control away. You know, they don't feel comfortable doing the things that make them happy and keep them healthy. And so those are the biggest things. Now, if we talk about a physical consequence for the, you know, patients as they get older, and so the elderly who may not be as steady on their feet, you know, some patients get up three, four, five times a night, and that can be a fall risk. And, you know, if you take an elderly patient possibly with some weakened bones from osteoporosis. And if they fall down, if they break a hip, 50% of patients who break a hip will not survive uh, six months later because of complications of that. So that could be very serious. Thank you so much for your time today and for your work in this field, Dr. Augusta. If you want to learn more about him or submit a question, visit mclaren.org slash Augusta. That's mclaren.org slash A-G-O-S-T-A. If you enjoyed this podcast, find more like it in our podcast library, and be sure to give us a like and a follow if you do. This is McLaren's In Good Health, the podcast from McLaren. I'm Caitlin White. Thanks for being with us.